I'm Julia McFarlane, co-host of the One Decision podcast. We're coming up on a significant milestone. It's our one-year anniversary of bringing you in-depth analysis of the critical decisions shaping our world. To celebrate the occasion, co-host and former head of MI6, Sir Richard Dearlove, and myself, will answer questions submitted by you, the listeners. Spies are usually pretty tight-lipped, so don't miss the chance to write in. Your question might even make it onto the podcast. For more information, head over to OneDecisionPodcast.com. You're listening to One Decision, the show that looks at the key choices made that shape our world. In May 2018, President Trump made the decision to pull the United States out of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the landmark six-nation deal brokered back in 2015, to curb Iran's nuclear program in exchange for sanctions relief. The JCPOA was his predecessor, President Barack Obama's key foreign policy legacy. Since the Trump withdrawal, Iran has resumed uranium enrichment while also entering into negotiations with the Biden administration, both sides working to find a compromise that could resuscitate the agreement or result in a new deal. But after the Trump administration inserted new areas of grievance onto the negotiating table, Iran has dug its heels increasingly into the ground. European allies, increasingly fed up with the lack of progress, have resorted to drafting a final text themselves, but to no avail. Meanwhile, as protests against the regime led by women convulse across Iran, reports have emerged that Biden officials told their Israeli counterparts any deal is now on ice, at least until after the midterms later this year. We've enlisted two expert voices to walk us through one of the thorniest areas of US foreign policy today. First off, Morgan Ortegas is a former intelligence analyst, and she became the State Department spokesperson in 2019 under Mike Pompeo until the closing days of the Trump administration in early 2021. She sat down with One Decision to give us the Trump government's viewpoint of why he made the decision to unravel the nuclear deal and how that decision has affected the current standoff with Iran. President Trump said he wanted a peaceful resolution with Iran uh, and that he said he is willing to negotiate for a new and a better deal, uh, noting that the original deal had fundamental flaws. Um, That original deal from 2015, the JCPOA, uh, under that Iran agreed in exchange for billions of dollars in sanctions relief, uh, it agreed to dismantle much of its nuclear program and open its facilities to very extensive international inspections under those terms. Now it's come back to the negotiating table and part of its demands are that the UN probe into its nuclear sites ends permanently. The US is not ever going to get a deal as comprehensive as the 2015 one, is it? Well, we think that we could have in the Trump administration um, under Mike Pompeo. And and I know, listen, there's there's a lot of areas in foreign policy in which Republican and Democrat uh, Democratic administrations um, will align. China is probably one of them where there's a lot of commonalities. Uh, Iran is not. That's probably one of the more divisive pieces. Um, But when you when you look at the 2015 deal, um, uh, you and others have described it as comprehensive. Uh, We certainly didn't see it that way in the 
that's why we withdrew from the deal, um, because we thought it, it was uh, actually made the region quite unstable. Um, it did not uh, deal at all with their ballistic missile production, which we all know was pretty prolific. Um, we saw that even on the, you know, the attacks um, against U.S. facilities uh, in Iraq from the regime after the death of Qasem Soleimani. Um, and then uh, we also saw, obviously, there were there was nothing in the original deal um, that stopped Iran's support for terrorism. For us, it made zero sense to uh, give that regime billions of dollars uh, in a deal where there is where there's nothing um, to codify that they will not uh, stop the said terrorism, which gave them that designation in the first place. Right. I mean, it's it's interesting that you you pick up on the the part of the JCPOA terminology, the comprehensive uh, designation to that deal. And you've, you've given a number of uh, reasons why Iran uh, can be argued as a malign actor, particularly to US interests, you, the, ballistic, the ballistic missile program, the attacks on US sites and facilities. And then, of course, the, uh, the, the actions of the IRGC. I believe it was um, Secretary Pompeo who announced that the IRGC was going to be prescribed uh, as a foreign terrorist organization for the first time. Uh, I, I, I take a point with all of that. But I, I put it to you that this this was a deal on Iran's nuclear capability. A lot of a lot of uh, supporters of the Iranian deal uh, back in 2015 uh, were keen to put a stranglehold on Iran's ability to develop nuclear weapons. Many fervent supporters and de- defenders of Israel. Israel, of course, sees Iran's nuclear program as an existential threat. So I I I I get that the U.S. position is that. Iran is a malign actor on on many different fronts. Was it not naive of the Trump administration to think that it could take in all these other aspects uh, of Iranian behavior, Iranian foreign policy? Uh, Its ballistic missile program is something that the Iranians see as quite separate to its nuclear enrichment program. Uh, I mean, I mean, the U.S. was never going to going to completely reorient Iran. from being a malign actor to being completely disarmed in many of the aspects which it is at an antithesis to US foreign policy under one deal. And so was that really a strategic an intelligent strategic decision in that sense. So I think, you know, to your question about what's naive and what's not, we would argue, and by the way, this isn't just the United States, this would be Israel and the, you know, Sunni Gulf Arab states around Iran. So the people in the region who are most immediately affected by them would have argued that it was naive to think that this deal would prevent Iran from achieving a nuclear weapon. So the United States, Israel, the Gulf Arab states, uh, Iran surrounding neighbors, did not believe the logic of the 2015 deal either. Um, when you look at the sunsets on the nuclear enrichment restrictions, uh, when you look at the UN uh, arms embargo, for example, also expiring, uh, you know, I think many of us viewed this as a deal that kicked the can down the road. Um, it did not prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. Um, it, it just simply uh, delayed it from getting a nuclear weapon. And perhaps, you know, I think the people who originally negotiated it thought, you know, if it, if it takes, if it buys us more time, if it buys us more years, that's more peaceful, uh, perhaps, you know, for the region, it gives us more time before Iran will develop a weapon. So I understand the logic of it, but the logic just ultimately didn't work. Uh, we did not see a decrease, a, a decree 
uh, excuse me, decreasing support um, for terrorism um, in the region. We didn't see, you know, again, any um, checks on the ballistic missile program. I want to stay on the nuclear program and we can we can discuss terrorism. I- I, again, I would just say that it, it's important to know that it, it is a fallacy to say that the 2015 deal prevented Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. It did not. It had sunset restrictions that kicked the can down the road for future administrations uh, to deal with. And Israel and the Gulf Arab states would also back up that assessment. It's not just the United States. So it's important to clarify that no one in the region who surrounded Iran has the opinion that the 2015 nuclear deal prevented Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. Right. That, that, that is correct. Israel has said that it is against that those, those sunset clauses in the deal that would eventually uh, give Iran the ability to produce unlimited amounts of enriched uranium. Israel's position is that it, it wants a deal that permanently ends its ability to produce nuclear weapons. But Israel's also wanting to end its ICBM missile programs and its militancy in the region. Iran has said that it won't negotiate a broader deal. And the reason I asked you that question of, of whether it would it it would have prevented Iran from achieving a nuclear weapon eventually you give the answer that the the administration was against the sunset clauses that makes a lot of sense but that wasn't just the only reason why Trump uh, President Trump said that he was pulling out he did bring in other elements he did bring in the ICBM missile program he did bring in Iran's uh, actions in the region and so what what I want to sort of get your thoughts on if if we are let's say we are looking only at the issue of nuclear proliferation, of Iran's weapon program, of the existential threat to Israel, would it maybe not have been better to negotiate solely on restraining the the Iranian nuclear program on the basis of, of, of adjusting those sunset clauses of maybe whether you wanted to stay in the deal or not, or whether you wanted to pull out, uh, as Trump did in 2018, and negotiate purely on the basis that you wanted to abolish those sunset clauses and say, no, we want this to be a permanent end to Iran's nuclear capabilities, would that not have been uh, a better, more realistic way to determine Israel's security in, in, in the context of the threat from a nuclear Iran? Yes. And uh, I wasn't a part of the administration at the time, but my understanding from uh, Brian Hook and others who were um, is that there were there was outreach to try and see uh, before we withdrew from the deal to try and see if there could be negotiations um, on those provisions, just as you talked about. Again, I can't speak to it because I wasn't personally there. Uh, but my understanding was that that uh, outreach did happen. Uh, we obviously consulted with um, our E3 partners quite closely and people who were who were in the deal. Um, if you'll remember, again, I wasn't in the administration at the time, but I think it was 18 or 19 months into the administration uh, before they withdrew from the deal. Um, so uh, I'm speaking secondhand here from from what I was told. But my understanding is there was outreach on those pieces um, that you just referred to before uh, the administration ultimately decided to withdraw from the deal. Um, but any diplomat or ally, I lived in Saudi Arabia for uh, a year and a half in 2010 and 11. So anybody who had been um, uh, working with the Gulf Arab states um, knew their intense opposition um, to uh, to the deal as well. And, and I think what particularly uh, irked them is that they did not have a seat at the table. Um, and so there was this almost sort of um, imperialistic, uh, I, I think it was unintentional, you know, I don't think anyone intended it to be that way. But it had this sort of almost like 
creepy uh, modern version of all the white Europeans and Americans sitting at a table negotiating a deal on behalf of uh, the Arabs, uh, the Gulf Arabs and the Israelis who were going to be most affected by the deal. Um, And so I think that we never thought that that was a good look. And we always thought that they should be consulted and should be a part of it. Um, So uh, you know, listen, we will never know if we were going to be able to negotiate a new deal because we obviously didn't win and uh, and there's a new administration and trying to negotiate now. Um, but that was the that was the stated purpose to to bring them back to the table. And that was reiterated to our E3 partners, to uh, China, Russia, you know, Israel, Gulf Arabs, everybody. Reporting initially indicated that Iran had actually complied with the deal, that they were complying um, and as a result of that perceived compliance, uh, President Obama, uh, his administration went on to lift secondary sanctions uh, on Iran's oil sector, allowing them to increase their exports uh, almost to the level um, that they had before the sanctions were put into place. Uh, and um, uh, and the and the, the U.S. allies also uh, unfroze uh, tens of billions of dollars in frozen Iranian assets. Uh, it rewarding the Iranians for that. Do you uh, do you believe that they were complying? Yeah, so I, I try not to have too many personal feelings on these things, um, but uh, the public um, U.S. intelligence community assessments were that Iran was complying with the nuclear deal. Um, so, uh, so, so that's what was stated publicly, and I've I've no reason to doubt those intelligence community um, assessments. Um, saying that, I think the the decision for for many people, um, and and I think that this was heavily heavily debated. At least it was publicly amongst. Um, Republicans and administration officials, I think that there was a, again, it took them, I think, 18 or 19 months to get to the decision to withdraw from the deal. So it's not one of those. There were certainly plenty of snap judgment decisions in the Trump administration. This doesn't appear to have been one of them. Um, Again, it appears to have been something that administration officials debated for quite some time. Um, And I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, the debate was, um, are uh, are we better off, um, are we and our allies and friends in the Middle East uh, better off um, staying in the deal and trying to get them to uh, to make sure that they don't get a nuclear weapon and and by the by these provisions, which again you know as I pointed out, the U.S. intelligence community assessed that they were, um, or is it is it uh, is the deal and the fact that the Iranians were getting billions of dollars in sanctions relief um, was that too uh, too much upheaval for the region? It's it is interesting you say that you know this was not a snap decision uh, from the Trump administration to withdraw from the deal, uh, and there had certainly been uh, for a very long time um, a lot of uh, American lawmakers, a lot of Republicans, uh, publicly railing against the Iran uh, nuclear deal. Uh, it was of course seen as one of the legacy uh, foreign policy agreements uh, of the Barack Obama years. I want to ask you. Do you think uh, it is fair to say that perhaps opposition to that deal was more about ideology? In the sense that uh, from the Republican side of American politics, there were lawmakers and officials who uh, are ideologically opposed to the Iranian regime, ideologically opposed to uh, any kind of action that would have benefited the Iranian regime, such as the lifting of sanctions. And the the opposition was not 
so much to the deal, the nuclear deal itself, but to anything that may have aided the the regime to have given them legitimacy in the eyes of the international community. Um, I see. And uh, yeah. and essentially, the opposition was one was 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 a political opposition. Um, I, I certainly I, I think those are all fair points that you're making. The question is why is there for me is why is there such uh, a hardened uh, opposition um, to the regime? Um, I think no doubt what you just said is true that there is definitely hardened opposition. The question is why and it comes from a fundamental um, belief that it is a uh, that is a revolutionary. Uh, uh, regime that has that had absolutely no chance uh, plans um, to change uh, their behavior. Uh, they weren't going to build schools or roads or bridges, as we saw during COVID. They didn't use the money from the 2015 agreement to build a public health infrastructure. You know, for the for their you know people. Uh, listen, we should have one of the things that should have been, I think, in the original 12 points that was not was uh, uh, more of a focus on human rights. Um, and whenever I came into the administration with Pompeo we made a concerted effort to start talking much more about the human rights um, atrocities in Iran, um, including like it was the fall of 2019. These numbers are really rough. So it's it's very, I, I, sometimes I hate to give numbers because we didn't have accurate numbers, but we estimated at least 10,000 people uh, were jailed for the um, protest against the regime, the peaceful protest against the regime. At least a thousand people we think uh, were killed by the regime as well. Well, well I absolutely want to, I, I do want to get into what was happening in Iran uh, shortly after um, the pullout. But I, I think, and I, I, I hate to ask this question because I, I can't stand it when, uh, when, when, when politicians do a bit of whataboutery when they're asked questions. I'm gonna about to do the same, but it's more because I want to get to the heart of what it is about the Iranians that is such a boogeyman to, uh, to, to, to parts of the U.S. compared to other malign actors. You know, I, in no way am I apologizing for the Iranian regime. Uh, you know, a litany of macabre human rights abuses across the board, uh, an oppressive regime hell-bent on oppressing their people, all of that uh, is is a taken. But why is it that there are parts of the American and I'll, you know, largely Republican, although it is, it, it is quite bipartisan, um, but let's just look at the Republican establishment there, their hatred for the Iranian regime that is not sort of on a par with, you know, other malign actors, you know, why do they not feel the same about the Russians? Why do they not feel the same about the Chinese? I mean, we had the Russians invading Crimea back in 2014. That was four years before President Trump took the US out of the Iranian nuclear deal. There are, uh, it was your boss, Secretary Pompeo, who accused the Chinese of actually carrying out genocide against Uyghurs in Xinjiang, as as far as I know, that he did not use that word in, in regards to the Iranians. What is it about the Iranian regime that Republicans and the Trump administration were so hell-bent on that they couldn't even stick to a nuclear deal that would, that would restrain it from getting a nuclear weapon just on that clause? 
Well, I think that's a, I have been asked this question before. I'm happy to answer it. I also, I must say, I do fundamentally disagree with the premise that the deal uh, restrained Iran from getting the nuclear weapon. It, it kicked the can down the road. It made, you know, the sunset provisions mean that, meant that they could eventually get a deal. So I just think for a point of reference, it's, a, I, I only bring that up because I think it's important to know where the heads are, uh, you know, where we are uh, for those of us who do, who oppose the 2015 deal and then who oppose this deal. Um, as well. Um, so I would say, uh, so why the focus um, uh, on Iran? Uh, you're right, by the way, thank you for bringing up the genocide designation against um, uh, China for the Xinjiang region. I was on maternity leave. Um, I had a baby two days after the election, um, and I came back at the very end. Uh, one of the reasons is I wanted that genocide designation to come out under my name uh, in my office. That was incredibly um, important to me. I often get this question, but you, the United States has friends and allies very close to, uh, you know, in the region who also have human rights abuses. And I would say the difference um, between a, a friend having human rights uh, uh, problems within their country and an enemy having human rights problems within their country is you sit down with a friend um, and you talk to the friend, right? You have a relationship. Um, and whenever you are at an embassy, for example, whenever you're demarching um, that friendly state, you say, listen, uh, XYZ is happening, you know, you're not allowing, I mean, I'm making this up, but you know, you're not allowing women to drive or, or you're not allowing women to have this opinion um, or, you know, whatever the, the human rights issue may be that we're dealing with a particular country on, you have an ongoing uh, negotiation, an ongoing friendship, an ongoing discussion where you hope, right, the end goal would be that that country uh, improves over time. Morgan Ortegas there, former spokesperson for the State Department from 2019 to 2021. Vali Nasser is a leading Iranian-American academic at Johns Hopkins, where he was dean between 2012 and 2019, specialising in the Middle East. Described by The Economist as a world-leading authority on Shia Islam, he has been studying and writing on geopolitics on both sides of the Persian Gulf for decades. He joined us to give us his understanding of where the Iran deal negotiations currently lie, and he began by giving his assessment of Trump's decision to pull the US out of the JCPOA back in 2018. Bali, thank you so much for joining us today. It's such a pleasure to have you uh, on the podcast. Do you think that uh, the Trump administration's decision to pull out of the deal was about its nuclear program or more about reestablishing uh, the US's position vis-a-vis Iran as a malign actor and uh, and damaging the regime um, uh, through, uh, th- through cancelling the lifting of sanctions that was punitive uh, to the regime? Uh, I, I think it, uh, that decision was a... Uh, short-sighted strategic mistake of monumental uh, uh, consequences. Uh, The reason is that it was, first of all, based on the assumption that somehow a nuclear deal, uh, rather than being a limited arms control deal, like the ones we used to have with the Soviet Union, is rather a cure-all for everything that we have as a problem with an adversary. And therefore, uh, uh, the the idea that the nuclear deal did not address uh, these sets of issues and those sets of issues, missiles, Hezbollah, etc., was basically saying, well, why didn't we pursue a path of solving everything with Iran? But that would mean that we probably would never have got to a deal and Iran would have continued to build uh, 
its nuclear program. Secondly, uh, I think um, President Trump uh, made a mistake that I think he went against some the advice of even some in his own administration who believed that the United States could put a lot more pressure on Iran if it stayed within the deal and use the mechanisms within the deal in order to get more from Iran, for instance, bring them on, bring, force them to the table for a follow-on deal. And by coming out of the deal, first of all, he isolated the United States diplomatically. Uh, secondly, he killed the idea of trust, which is absolutely essential for not just signing a deal, but for, for the other side actually implementing the deal. And, and that made actually deal-making with Iran far more uh, difficult. Thirdly, I think he made a mistake in in believing that somehow sanctions can uh, get him something that he couldn't get President Obama or hasn't been able to get us uh, all these years with uh, North Korea, that somehow he's going to choke the regime to come to the table. And that proved to be a a complete uh, uh, mistake. And then uh, finally, um, he was not willing to go to war. I mean, he ran on a campaign of, of uh, non-intervention. He thought wars were for fools. He criticized President Bush over Iraq. He wanted out of Syria. He wanted to end the war in Afghanistan. And if you don't get a diplomatic deal with Iran, the only solution you have to doing away with those problems is to, is to go to war. And the Iranians brought, actually, the United States close on multiple occasions, shooting down a a uh, American drone and then attacking Saudi uh, um, oil facilities. And even after the killing of General Soleimani, they lobbed over 100 missiles at an American air base. And every time uh, it was Trump who blinked. So, uh, you know, you, 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 um, so he, he, he dismantled diplomacy, uh, um, basically declared an economic war on Iran, uh, closed the doors essentially to, to having a political resolution to the, to the uh, 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 nuclear crisis, and then was not willing to, uh, to fall back up what he, what the, the, where he was going with actual credible uh, threats of, uh, of force. Why hasn't the Biden administration, rather than sort of m- maintaining how, how the Trump administration left it and keeping those things like the ICBMs, like the, the IRGC on the table, why do they not narrow the scope to, to make it purely about about the about the nuclear program? Well, partly is because uh, President Trump uh, added those issues uh, as way of pressuring Iran. Uh, they also uh, uh, sort of get made made a number of sanctions against Iran uh, designated on multiple fronts. So uh, if some, Iran was sanctioned for something for nuclear reasons, they attached human rights, Hezbollah missiles, regional, etc., to it. So those sanctions are no longer can be lifted just for the nuclear issue. Uh, and and I and part this is this is also largely a domestic issue. In other words, uh, lifting the, uh, uh, let's say, the terrorism designation on IRGC would have been purely symbolic because IRGC is under sanctions for a variety of other things. Uh, uh, and, and it would not have had any material impact on, uh, on its um, uh, uh, behavior or on its uh, uh, resources, etc. It, it is largely something that is uh, symbolic for, for Iran. Uh, and but but it's a 
but even to think about that, it would have been a huge political issue domestically for the United States. Uh, I mean, the symbolism here becomes very important. Mm. So, so, so what you're saying is that they, the, the Biden administration is sort of stuck with the palette left behind by the Trump administration. They, if, they cannot narrow the scope of uh, of the terms of the nuclear deal by saying actually we we only want this to be about nuclear because that would be seen in 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 a sense as a concession to the Iranians before talks even take place in that sense is, is that what you mean and the optics of that would be even if right I mean even if the Iranians tomorrow came and said that okay we're in agreement with that final draft I mean President Biden still is going to get hugely attacked in the United States by Republicans, as well as a number of Democrats. Because Iran, the reality is, Iran has become the only bipartisan issue uh, where, um, you know, uh, that, 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 could, that the president could face uh, uh, pushback on from Congress, from Senate, from the, the, the broader public opinion, and uh, that he needs to spend political capital in order to justify why, why this deal was necessary. So in a way, the, uh, the Biden administration is, is in a very delicate position. Uh, it cannot afford for this deal to, to fail because then Iran will be on a path of uh, becoming a threshold state. The United States would have to dedicate diplomatic military resources to manage Iran at a time where so much is being focused on Ukraine and Taiwan and, and other issues. Uh, uh, on the other hand, uh, if you actually uh, uh, are going to arrive at an agreement with Iran, uh, and I'm not saying that the Iranians are necessarily making it easy, but let's say if there was an agreement, he would have to face serious domestic uh, political consequences and be willing to spend the political capital to, to sell the deal and also to lift the sanctions that, is, uh, pro- that, that, that the deal would, have, would, would promise Iran. And that's why I find it difficult that the Biden administration would have told Israel so point blank that basically there's not going to be a deal unless what the intonation was is that we want to keep the stalemate going. So we don't want to sign a deal right now because it's, you know, midterm elections are coming up and the president doesn't want to spend political capital and the Iranians are asking too much. And the same also plays in Tehran as well. The Iranians uh, are not ready to sign. Uh, some of the reasoning is logical. Some of it is not. Some of it is uh, symbolic and domestic. Some of it is misreading of the situation. But they also cannot afford or don't want to go to a situation where they say, okay, there's no future in nuclear negotiations. Now we have to go to 90% enrichment and start uh, uh, much more aggressive policies uh, in the region. I, I, I don't think they, they want to go there either. Vali, I guess, um, you, you know, we hear a lot about the the hardliners making uh, any kind of negotiation or engagement with the US very, very difficult. Uh, it was difficult for Rouhani, it's difficult for Raisi. But what about the Supreme Leader? I mean, how beholden is the Supreme Leader to appeasing the hardliners who, as you say, will never accept a deal with the US under any circumstances? Well, I wouldn't say that all the hardliners would not accept it. I mean, uh, you know, one, one of the issues that's happened, which might be beneficial, is that because now the hardliners uh, control all the instruments of power in Iran, the nuclear deal is no longer an issue between moderates and hardliners. 
So, uh, they, they, so, so you know, they, they can get it to a consensus like the response they sent to the U.S. in Vienna uh, more easily. Nobody's posturing against the Rouhani or a Zarif uh, thinking that the nuclear deal is going to empower reform in Iran. I think, you know, the, you, you have people who are ideological or even based on their own strategic calculations think that this deal is a bad idea. There are those also who think that uh, this deal uh, could work if uh, Iran gets certain guarantees that it's not going to be left uh, holding the bag again. And, and, I, and yes, there is going to be negotiations back and forth in terms of, uh, you know, how do you uh, uh, sort of assuage uh, concerns about certain things. But, uh, you know, Iran's uh, chief nuclear negotiator was categorized as a hardliner. Uh, uh, Iran's foreign minister is, is very close to IRGC himself. Uh, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, so, so this, this opinion is no longer hardliner reformist. It really comes down to the political and strategic calculation about Iran is entering into a new deal with the United States. Uh, Iran is always going to be a more vulnerable party in any deal with the U.S. Last time it got burned, it, it ended up under maximum pressure. It survived by the skin of its teeth. Does it trust the same process again? And who's going to take responsibility, political responsibility, internally for this? So this is one side. The other side is that Iranians are unhappy with their economic situation. And the country is suffering. Uh, it may hold its nose above the water, but that's just about it. So, so the, what compels them to talk to the U.S., is also the need to find a way to, um, to, to, to address their own domestic economic issues. The, uh, the geopolitical landscape has changed uh, back from when the first deal uh, was being brokered uh, pre-2015. Um, and, and, one of, and we've mentioned Israel a few times already as the sort of the elephant in the room where uh, the elephant in the, the negotiating room where this issue is concerned. And so I, I want to get your thoughts on how have the Abraham Accords uh, changed the dynamics on, on, the, on the negotiating table when it comes to the Iran nuclear agreement discussions? Uh, well, uh, it's a very good question. I mean, uh, you know, I, uh, the Abraham Accords perhaps uh, led Iran to also try to assuage some of the fears of UAE and Saudi Arabia about Iran and to engage them more positively. On the other hand, I think Saudi Arabia and, and, and UAE, which actually joined the Abraham Accord and led it, uh, did so largely because they had they they were worried about the U.S. commitment to their security. So we're, they were trying to build a deeper relationship with Israel to balance Iran. So you have to take this into the look at this in a context that that during the Trump era and then after that the region really has lost trust in the U.S. It's not just Iran over the nuclear deal. The Saudis were attacked by Iran and the U.S. did nothing. U.S. is focused on Ukraine and China, not not on them. But having said that, unlike Israel, which wants to expand the uh, Abraham Accords into a full sort of Middle East NATO with U.S. backing to contain Iran, Saudi Arabia and UAE want to deepen relations with Israel, but they also want to engage Iran and start relations. So UAE just a few weeks ago sent back its ambassador to Tehran. Saudis have been talking with Iran and those talks are now suspended because Iraq, which was hosting the talks, is right now not in a situation to, 
uh, to continue to do so. But Saudis and Iranians are talking about Yemen. They're talking about potentially restoring diplomatic relations. It does not mean that there's going to be a sort of a love fest between them. But it means that Saudi Arabia and, and UAE on one side and Iran on the other have decided that it's better for them to have relations and more normal relations than, uh, than, than not. And that, that's not necessarily the Israeli position. Israel would much rather have the Arabs line up behind Israel in a much more aggressive policy against Iran. So the Abraham Accords is, um, I don't think it's going to expand to be uh, a, a sort of a Middle East NATO, uh, unless, unless the current scenario changes in a, in a major way. Uh, uh, and, and that Iran becomes aggressive with UAE and, and, and Saudi Arabia. And I think the Saudis and UAE want to be much more in the middle than, than sign up for uh, a situation where they're going to get bloodied in any kind of a American-Israeli confrontation with Iran. Mm, that's that's really interesting. And the idea of a Middle East NATO, as in what some kind of mutual defence clause between the parties of the Abraham Accords, I mean, is that something that you think the Israelis are actively pushing for? Um, and do you think they'll get anywhere, given what you're saying about uh, s- some of Israel's allies uh, actually changing their position slightly to, to try to talk to Iran on a number of issues? Well, it was part of President Biden's sort of talking points uh, or the media talking points before he left for his trip to the Middle East. Uh, and, and Israel has, was talking about this very openly about not calling it necessarily a NATO, but calling it a, a sort of an alliance, military alliance, open military alliance between Israel and, and the, the Gulf, uh, Persian Gulf states against Iran. But I think during this visit to Saudi Arabia, uh, the, the, the regional countries poured some cold water on that. And they basically, I think, said that for now they want to follow a strategy of both engaging Israel and Iran. And, uh, and uh, they don't want a situation in which they will end up being the battleground on which Iran and U.S. and Israel are going to fight their war. Uh, and so uh, the only way they're going to get off the the target list, Iran's target list, is uh, to improve relations with Iran. And on the other hand, the Iranians have been wooing them. Uh, President Raisi, uh, as soon as he came in, said that regional relations uh, and trade with the region was his top priority. He doesn't want to open up to Europe like his predecessor did. Uh, He wants uh, uh, much more regional trade uh, and trade with China and, and, and Russia. So I think the, these hardliners in Iran also want better relations with their neighbors. So there is a different dynamic we don't read about. Does the regime actually want a nuclear bomb in itself, or is it a tool in these negotiations? My belief is that for now, it is a tool. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, I, I think they understand that actually having it is going to involve a whole different set of strategic, economic, political considerations that that changes the lay of the land. I, I think they wanted it much earlier on in the program, around uh, you know uh, between 1989 and 2003, because they were convinced that Saddam uh, would come back uh, for Iran and would use weapons of mass destruction against Iran, and Iran was helpless uh, at some levels in, during the 
Iran-Iraq war and, and had to have uh, WMD deterrence capability. But after Saddam was overthrown, I think that logic no longer mattered. And, and Iran, I think, is tried to use its nuclear program as leverage to get um, the United States to the negotiating table and then to get concessions from the United States. I mean, without a nuclear program on the table, the U.S. would never, ever lift sanctions on Iran so long as the Islamic Republic was there. And, uh, and so uh, that's why they were willing to imp- negotiate and implement a deal if sanctions got lifted, when they uh, uh, when the U.S. left the deal, the conclusion in Tehran was that Iran's program had not been big enough for the U.S. to take it seriously. I mean, Trump could walk away from the deal because he wasn't worried about Iran's nuclear program. Uh, uh, it was, uh, and and uh, and then we know when President Biden came in, we forget that the first few months he just sat on the maximum pressure and was not willing to engage directly. And it's only after the Supreme Leader said that, okay, we're going to go to 60% enrichment that the Vienna talks started. So the Iranians have also learned that the U.S., just like they respond to pressure, the U.S. also responds to pressure. And for them, pressure is, uh, is, to, uh, uh, is to keep enriching and getting closer. But uh, I, I, there might be a point if they come under a sustained attack that they make a strategic decision to build a bomb. But I don't think they're there then. Yeah, I, it's, I think one can make a similar argument that that is uh, a calculation the North Koreans have made as well. And actually, the North Koreans today have, have taken further steps um, in their nuclear ambitions. And so that's, that, that's another another thing on the horizon to contend with. Um, Farley, we're out of time, but thank you so much. It was so, so, so great to talk to you. Um, Really great to have you on the podcast. I hope you'll join us again in the future. Thank you. It was great talking to you and thank you for inviting me to the programme. And now we bring in my co-host, Sir Richard Dearlove, the former chief of MI6, for his analysis. Richard, thank you for uh, for joining us. I guess I the the first question to to ask you... um, following on those two conversations uh, about the Iran deal and, and, and the state of the negotiations uh, at the moment for, from two different perspectives, I guess the, the, the first question I want to ask you is, is, is about the balance of power in Iran. I mean, in, in your opinion, who do you think is, is pulling the strings in Iran? Is it the Supreme Leader? Is it the Guardian Council? Is it the, 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 Maj, the Majlis, the Iranian parliament? I mean, who, who is it, do you think, is, is really the key decision maker here? Well, I think no question on something like the JCPOA, the ultimate authority is definitely the Supreme Leader. But... I think what you have to understand when you're thinking about Iran is that Iran uses the concept of different constituencies in its power structure to, as it were, in different areas, particularly foreign policy, often to pursue contradictory policies. So Iran will use the power structure to say, well, the Guardian Council wants to do this, but you know probably that the view of the supreme leader is different. So the the Iranians are incredibly tricky, and I think tricky is the word to deal with, and they're incredibly tricky to negotiate with. I mean, they have some very sophisticated negotiators and diplomats, but in the end, 
what the Supreme Leader says, and it's usually only on very big deal key issues. And of course, the JCPOA is the key issue in foreign policy at the moment for the West's relationship with Iran and probably for Iran's relationship with the West. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the buck may stop at the supreme leader. And uh, I think you're, you're, you're totally right to point out that he has to consider the competing sort of points of views and the constituencies across Iran. But I mean, you, you mentioned the IRGC, and, and we briefly talked about how the IRGC has actually done quite well. Uh, from in, in a financial sense, from the kiboshing of the nuclear of the nuclear deal, because it's pushed a lot of Iran's oil exports onto the black market, and so that is really where it has it has been able to take advantage of that. And the um, the makeup of the IRGC and its and its business conglomerates has grown since uh, since Trump pulled the uh, pulled the U.S. out of the nuclear deal, allowing the deal to unravel. Talk to me about that about that dynamic i mean can the irgc how weighty is is the irgc's uh influence now and could the supreme leader if he wanted to push through uh a negotiated settlement perhaps against the wishes of the irgc does he have the power to do that the irgc are in effect the praetorian guard of the regime and the whole character of the IRGC is to sustain the power structures that lead directly to the supreme leader. So I, I mean to sort of characterize the IRGC as an organization that's sort of benefiting specifically, I think you've got to look at it as the organization which is key to the regime holding power. And therefore it's the natural recipient of benefits uh, in order to, as it's uh, sustain its, its might. I mean, it, 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 it's both an intelligence organization, a terrorist support organization, and a military organization. It fulfills all of those three functions. However, I think what you also ask, have to understand about Iranian policy, its policy in the Middle East has been to fight what I would call arm's length or distant wars. So it doesn't necessarily engage directly with its enemies, but it uses the Houthi in Yemen to fight Saudi Arabia. Uh, it uses um, Hamas um, and Hezbollah, uh, you know, to conduct its battles. And the IRGC are deeply embedded with those organizations, both in terms of supplying them with weapons, but more importantly, perhaps supplying them with military advice, training, and in certain cases, direct involvement and leadership with IRGC officers seconded into those movements. So, you know, there is a clear model that the Iranians use to cause such, um, as it were, instability and dislocation in pursuing what they see as their strategic interests. You described the relationship between the IRGC and the Supreme Leader as the IRGC being the sort of the Praetorian Guard of the Supreme Leader. Uh, so, so is it a symbiotic relationship or does Khamenei have the IRGC under his heel? Um, you know, do they take orders directly from him or...? 
Well, I think the supreme leader, in terms of direct orders, has a certain detachment. But, you know, let's say the interpretation of his word and his wishes um, are, as it were, the, the drivers which direct the uh, IRGC. I mean, I would say one thing that when, before Kasim Soleimani was um, killed by the Americans, there was a suggestion that Kasim Soleimani was a potential successor as head of state, or let's say top of the power structures, and you know, whatever, if or when the supreme leader uh, moved on or died or whatever it was. Um, so, I mean, he was seen. I heard those reports, but I questioned that because Qasem Soleimani was a general, he was a military figure, he's not a mullah, he's not a cleric, he doesn't have the sort of spiritual credentials to be eligible for the role of supreme leader. Was that is that not right? I think that's true to an extent. But then you have to, as it were, <clears throat> think to what extent are the power structures in Iran truly religious or to what extent are they purely power structures? And I think Qasim Soleimani was certainly uh, in a position or was getting into a position which was so powerful he could have challenged for leadership, despite the fact that, you know, he would and he would have been sustained, of course, by the power of the IRGC. Um, I mean, okay, that's the theoretical discussion. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think now, I, I, I'm not knowledgeable about his successor, but I don't think his successor is, is by any stretch. I mean, it, if you had ever watched videos of Qasim Soleimani, I mean, he was a very charismatic figure. Um, uh, he had a, a re remarkable physical presence. Um, you know, there was a sort of aura of power and serenity around his persona. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's not surprising. Uh, he overreached himself uh, and clearly had become rather arrogant. And, you know, to act in a way where the Americans could target and kill him like that was pretty extraordinary. I want to ask you, in the intervening years since the deal has started to unravel after President Trump withdrew the US out of the JCPOA, Iran has, uh, ha hasn't stopped exporting oil. It's just stopped doing it on official markets. Uh, and we briefly mentioned um, the IRGC facilitating a lot of this down back channels and, and black markets. Uh, what, what, what do you know uh, of that process? What has Iran been doing with its oil at the moment? And, and how is that likely to change if a deal is reached, presumably after the midterm? Well, there's clearly a market for Iran as long as the buyers can avoid the impact of the US's global sanctions. Um, but there is a, you know, sufficient established network, and obviously, China, that doesn't accept, you know, the consequence of American sanctions. You know, is a significant player. If it were not for China, 
I think the Iranians would be in a far more difficult position. What I would say about the JCPOA at the moment is I think it suits both the Iranians and the Americans to be in a state of negotiation but not to have an agreement. Um, and I think that that situation is probably going to last for a very long time because there's no doubt that the Democrats, I think, are very reluctant to sign a deal which is going to get them an awful lot of stick in the United States domestically. I mean, the other thing that you need to bear in mind is despite the Abraham Accords in the Middle East and the way that that's changed the strategic situation, there are a lot of black channels between the Sunni Arab world and Iran. I mean, originally those black channels were operated largely by the Omanis, who have never broken off their dialogue with the Iranians. And they've been important for the Americans because Oman is a close Western ally, particularly close to the UK and the US. But I mean, now I think we see clear evidence that even the Saudis um, have a back channel and that even, well, maybe, maybe the UAE depends on others' back channels and doesn't have one itself. Yes, that was something that Valid Nasser briefly mentioned, which I find very, very interesting because a lot of these countries are building on their new ties with Israel. And presumably the, the Israelis are perfectly aware uh, perfectly aware of these these channels and, and these conversations. I mean, how will the Israelis be... Uh, you know, they, they can't be happy about the Saudis and, and some of the Gulf states. I think probably the Israelis get some benefit from it because, I, I mean, what you have to understand is that the Trump administration sort of really did change, surprisingly, the sort of strategic agenda in the Middle East. I mean, not fundamentally in terms of the relationship between Sunni and Shia, but what has happened is that the Palestinian issue has actually been sidelined. All Middle Eastern politics used to circulate around the Palestinians. I would say now that the focus is the issue of Iran's relationships with the rest of the Middle East. So the Palestinians have the disadvantage of no longer being in the center of the strategic optic. And of course, that's very difficult for the Palestinians. And you can see the consequences of that in the way that uh, their star, you know, in relation, to, you know, Hamas is, 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 is not as influential as it used to be. But, you know, the key issue now, you know, is how to deal with Iran. And it is a pretty extraordinary series of events that when Saudi Arabia and Israel become allies, uh, which they have done, in looking at the problem of how to deal with Iran. And of course, for Iran, the lineup now of the Sunni states plus Israel against them is a pretty powerful 
alliance, which gives them much less room for maneuverability. Okay, they still, as it were, have their influence, their patronage with Hezbollah, with Hamas, and with the Houthi. Right. And you mention the patronage of groups like Hamas and Hezbollah, but no one is uh, no one is is patronizing Iran. And when we think of how the Iranian economy and the real has been doing under these sanctions, under the, the difficulty in doing business with anyone and, and nothing through the dollar exchange, how long are they going to keep on being able to spend money on these foreign adventures by sending these very expensive missiles to the Houthis in Yemen, funding their Shia militias in Iraq and uh, across across the Middle East? How secure is the Iranian regime's grip on power, really? Yeah, excellent question. And, you know, the answer is I'm not sure, but... There will come a point for sure when, you know, the Iranian revolution, as it currently continues to exist, will fall apart. But, I mean, predicting that, predicting its timing, it would probably be triggered by, you know, economic hardship. And uh, with the current pressures of inflation, but on the other hand, you know, the price of energy markets means that the regime has more money available even on the black market from selling energy. So, I, I mean, it's a very difficult equation to calculate. I mean, personally, I don't think that the uh, Iranian uh, revolutionary regime, uh, you know, will endure, let's say, for more than another four or five years. But, you know, that's a pretty rash prediction. Um and it's just based maybe on a gut feeling that they can't go on like this uh, and that there's huge dissatisfaction, which we know there is, when you really get down into the populace and see that the way, you know, they, they really suffer. I mean, they've really suffered from international sanctions. They continue to suffer. The economy is in a huge mess. Um, and with the rise in commodity prices, the scarcity of grain supplies and all those things, uh, they're probably facing a pretty dire winter. Let's see what happens. That's all we have time for for this episode of One Decision. If you enjoyed this episode, why not like and subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts so you never have to miss an episode. We drop new shows every Thursday. From me and the team, thank you for listening and see you next time.